And tonight I want to talk about insight, the nature of insight and supports for insight. After all, this is called insight meditation. So you may have been wondering, you know, when are you going to get an insight? What actually is an insight? And uh, just basically, really, what do we mean by insight? And in some ways, it's obvious, you know, it's, it's not a piece of knowledge that we somehow acquire and then have. You know, now I will understand impermanence, and I've got it, you know, it's an insight. It's, you know, that kind of aha moment when we suddenly experience ourselves or a particular situation or uh, the way we understand a particular situation just shifts by itself, right? It's nothing that we can make happen, which is, of course, endlessly frustrating to us. But the situation, and the thing about insight is the situation itself doesn't necessarily change, right? It's not that somehow we fixed everything. It's just a sudden shift in perception that changes our whole attitude to and potential response within whatever the particular situation or the particular uh, issue is that happens to be going on. So it's not a result of thinking, which we know, but let me say that again. <laughs> In fact, let me read from Thich Nhat Hanh. Understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. It is the result of a long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes, sometimes, understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. So, insight is just literally, in my experience, a shift of perception. And when we translate um, what the Buddha talked about as our, our understanding things in the wrong way or wrong view, I really like that translation, wrong view, as not being metaphorical, but being quite literal. That we're viewing ourselves, we're viewing our moment-to-moment experience wrongly, inaccurately, you know. And insight is when that perception in various ways makes a little sudden shift. The example I use a lot for the shift of perception, it's it's pretty apt, is, you know those magic eye graphic photos that they have whole books of them, right, where you look at it and it's two or three or four colors of just different graphic design. There's no particular recognizable literal image. But the whole trick to the magic, as you know, is if you look at it steadily in a particular way, which is I've found is actually sort of unfocused but steady way, suddenly a 3D image of, of something recognizable is there, right? It's like it suddenly leaps out. Suddenly there's dinosaurs, where before it was just little green and red images. And you really see it, dinosaurs, right? It's not a trick. And then if you look away or you start looking too hard, it's gone. Shift of perception. Until you see it for yourself, you can be told, you know, day in, day out, up the wazoo, there's dinosaurs there. And until you see it, You may believe it or not believe it. You may beat yourself over the head trying to see the dinosaurs, which, as we know, doesn't work. The more you try, the more you grasp at trying to see it, the less likely you will see it. Once you've seen it, then the next one that comes along, you don't know what's in it, but there's a shift in the mind stream. There's a shift in the understanding, and you you know, oh, this looks like it could also be a magic eye. You don't know for sure. Maybe someone's tricking you and making a little graphic image and there isn't anything in it. That's possible, right? But you know how, you know, it's, it's possible to have that shift of perception and it gets easier and easier, doesn't it? And it's also okay that it goes back. 
So in a way, both of those ways of perceiving are possible. That's really the kind of shift of perception that happens over and over in life, for in just in regular situations, you know, but also, and particularly what I want to talk about tonight, in our meditation practice, in the way that we perceive and then understand our mind and body process. So when that shift of perception comes with the magic eye or maybe in daily life there's some problem you're mulling over you know how to fix it or something creative and we all know how when we let go of clinging so tightly to what do I do and just relax the whole thing and be present often something unexpected springs up whether we call it intuition or whatever you know and that comes from the heart the mind that lets go, that relaxes clinging to either a particular, I've got to know this, or this is the way it is, or I know, or trying to see what we think we need to see. It's in the relaxing of the clinging, but with a continuing, steady, connected attention, awareness, that the shift of perception we call insight is possible. And as we all know, we can't hold on to the insight. We can't keep necessarily that shift of perception. And while the insight is not thought itself, of course we're going to think about it. Thoughts will arise to explain it. Back to the, the 3D image, just the way I described it. Oh, okay, there's something about optical illusion and the way it's arranged, and a 3D image arises okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Just recognizing that's our use of thought to explain or describe something. But it isn't the same thing as the insight. And we can't get back to, hold on to, always be perceiving in that new insightful way by continuing to hold on to the thoughts, right? So it's just seeing there are two different functions. Thought isn't bad. It's useful if we recognize it for what it is. But if we think we're going to grab a hold and think and think, you know, if I start thinking, how can I look at these things in the correct way to see the soccer players and what is it, no, 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 you know, you completely lose it. So the insights that come in practice, can, they're, they're momentary, but they affect a change in the mind stream, don't they? It's like we see things in a different way And it's never quite the same again. And they have varying degrees of effect. So very common would be, you know, you're sitting with pain. Okay, that's very common. We know that. And really bringing the attention over and over gently into the pain and just seeing all the fluctuations the mind is going through around the unbearableness, I'll just stay with it, I'll grit my teeth, I, you know, I'm going to break my leg, I don't uh, know, spacing out, going into fantasy, the suffering, the craziness, the whatever. And somewhere in there, maybe somewhere down the line, you know, there's a little moment where the whole awareness is just totally present with that pain. And in that moment, it's just sensation. You're not thinking about it. You're totally present. There's a total surrender. There's a letting go of trying to fix it, of trying to describe it, of trying to get away from it, of anything. And just total presence. And in that moment, oh, it's no longer suffering. You don't even think that. It's just, oh, okay, what's the problem? It doesn't last, does it? And that not lasting just may be that the attention wavers, you know? Or it may be that in that, some thoughts start to come in, or there's a a grasping, or, wow, this is great, how can I keep it? You know, whatever. Situation, the circumstance changes because it's always changing. And we're back in the suffering. Maybe the suffering seems worse because there's that thought in our mind, wow, wait a minute. 
A minute ago, this was all okay. Now it's suffering. Wow, it's so much worse. (laughs) I wish I never knew it could be okay. (laughs) I wish I never heard of this starving. I was much better off when I was ignorant. But it's (laughs) too late. (laughs) It's not really a conscious option that we can take very well anymore. I just dull myself out. But anyway, even though at that I'm, I'm making a joke, you know, the suffering seems worse. There's a shift in the mind stream. We've had a touch of say, oh, right. Where was the suffering here? And we can then think about it. You can extrapolate from an insight like that all the Buddhist teachings, really. You get the, the whole Four Noble Truths, you know, that there's suffering, which we would have said was, my knee is killing me. That's the suffering, you know. There's no surprise here. But in that shift of perception, that insight, ah, the suffering is the reactive mind. There was an ending, a cessation of that suffering. The mind let go into total presence. No more suffering. And the path of suffering, in this case, the path of clear awareness, not clinging, but steady, connected attention. Right? That's thinking. It's useful to help us you know, understand and sort of digest what happens And it can give us a guideline how to meet pain the next time, but it can't hold on to that insight for us. But it's okay, because we learn to really trust that this understanding that comes from insight affects change on a cellular level, the way I like to put it. Like we're learning it on a level below the level of conscious thought. And we learn to trust that. So... In that moment of insight, what really happens is we've seen through, you could say, wrong view. The wrong view that I'm really suffering because my knee's hurting, and if the pain would stop, then everything would be okay. And it can only be okay if the pain stops, for example. One woman um, on a retreat told me this little example. I love it because it's so perfect. In the middle of a, the long sitting in the afternoon, it was very hot. It was a retreat in the summer. Crowded room, kind of stifling. She was really restless, really that kind of going to jump out of your skin. I cannot bear this another minute. So she stood up, and it was uh, in a hall that was crowded, and she was in the back, and to get out, you know, she would have been walking through people and creaking, and so sometimes social pressure keeps you there. And sometimes that's good. (laughs) In this case, it was good. So she was standing there. I can't bear this. It's so unpleasant. The agitation, the restlessness, so unpleasant. And suddenly, she was just about to leave, she said. And suddenly she had the thought, oh, right. This is just uncomfortable sensation. What's the problem? I can be with uncomfortable sensation. And the whole huge thing just fell away. Now, it continued to be uncomfortable sensation. It's not that suddenly she was, you know, floating on a cloud of bliss. But the whole sense of struggle and suffering and needing to get out was gone. And... Just she just really was awake in that shift. You know, sometimes it happens and we just kind of zone out and don't notice. It isn't really quite an insight then because we don't really take it in. But she really noticed. You know, oh, wow. Nothing changed but the perception. Almost the way of relating, the way of describing what's going on in that situation. But it changes everything. And it was really a profound moment for her because it then affects our mind stream. It affects the habits of mind, you know. Nothing's quite as solid the way we thought it was, you know. And that's really what is going on in a meditation retreat, why we have so much emphasis on the moment-to-moment continuity of mindfulness throughout all the sitting and walking in the day, to really begin to allow our attention to get clear, connected, 
but not clinging, not holding to preconceived notions, open for discovery. Because we can't decide, as I said, we can't make insight happen. You know, even when we've had it before, we can't make it happen again. All we can do is set up supporting conditions and then pray to God. You know, some spontaneous insight arises before we get too discouraged. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) It's just to set up supportive conditions. That's what we're doing here. As I said, the main factors that I would say support the arising of the shifts of perception is exactly what we're doing here. Learning how to bring a totality of attention, of awareness, of all our mental and physical energy. How to collect that in a moment and the next moment and bring it wholeheartedly to whatever is arising by itself, we meet it with the, um, the bare attention. What Rodney talked about the other night is caring attention. It's an attention that has no preconceived notions, no preference, no underlying subtle conceptual ideas of if I pay attention to this emotion, I will learn you know, X, Y, Z. If I bring non-judging, total attention to this pain, it's bound to go away, you know? Because we know how things dissolve in the light of awareness. That happened yesterday, so that meant I was doing it right, how to get there again. You see how quickly, how quickly the non-clinging, non-judging, non-conceptual attention gets the subtle overlay of some notion, some idea, something we think we know or want to learn. But the pure awareness, open for discovery, but not even trying to discover, just to meet whatever's arising, totally, totally present. And in that, There's the possibility for perception to shift. Just the possibility for something other than what we expect or think we already know, or don't even know we think we already know, to emerge. (laughs) You know what I mean? I got a little caught up in syntax on that one. But, for example, some perceptions, some ways we view reality, either the reality of who we are, what a human being is, what's going on in our mind and body, or the reality of what's happening in a particular situation. Some realities, as sure as we are, it's easy if we simply pay clear attention for that perception to shift. Sometimes the ideas, the views, the certainties we're holding to, we don't even know their views or certainties. We just know that's how the world is. Let me give you an example of how it can shift easily. A friend um, told me this story. She was on a retreat some years ago with Ajahn Semedo in Switzerland. And at that time, to put on a retreat in Switzerland, they rent these really huge old houses. They have all over Switzerland big, big houses that youth groups rent in the summer, you know, up in the, up in the mountains. There were like 50, 100 kids can come and spend a week. So they're old, old, creaky houses, you know, no insulation. And every, you think there's little creeks on the floors here, but every time you'd walk anywhere, you know, enormous creeks. So she was sitting during a sitting period, you know, schedule like this, sitting in the meditation hall was upstairs, And as I said, it was really creaky, so she was just starting to get focused on her breath, quiet, concentrated, and then she starts hearing creak, creak, snap, creak, and somebody's walking downstairs, and the walking room was downstairs under the meditation hall. 
and, you know, the, the aversion that can just spring up immediately from the unpleasant sound, but the immediate, how can they be walking? You know it's a sitting period. There's a reason that we have a schedule so we don't bother one another, you know, what, you know, and on and on. How do they expect me to get concentrated when this jerk is walking downstairs, creak, 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 you know? So she said this went on for some time during the sitting. And as long as you're lost in that thought, you're lost in it. There's no chance for anything else to happen, you know? Then she really, okay, let me just come back and be with the breath. Just try and just be with the breath. So she came back and was feeling her breath. And lo and behold, she noticed that she was sitting, leaning her back against the wall. And every time she took a breath, and her back moved out, <laughs> it hit the wall and made a creak. <laughs> so she was hearing herself breathing against the wall and creaking and getting completely incensed <laughs> at this person, you know, walking downstairs. That's a good example, you know, of once you've seen that, there's no going back, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh my God. But she could only see that really by letting go of the story and her anger in the moment, not even working through it, but just saying, okay, never mind. Let me just come back and meet what's happening in the moment, this breath. And something completely unexpected is able to be perceived, right? So, okay, that's relatively easy. But it does take the same qualities of Effort, the commitment to be present, the willingness to just come with your full attention to whatever is, the non-clinging, the non-grasping to our ideas of things, and just the willingness to meet this moment fresh. We use the breath, we use the body, we use whatever's arising as a way to bring ourselves into the moment, but it's not really so important which thing she was meeting fresh, but just something arising here and now. Okay, so that's, that's easier. Sometimes we can get so locked into not even knowing that we're clinging to a description of reality that we actually don't even notice information that shows us that we're holding to some very limited idea. Or another example, some years ago I was teaching a retreat some in California, about 50 people, and it was like five days into the retreat, um, and I was meeting with a woman. It was her first retreat. There's a lot of people there whose first retreat it was. So when it, there's a lot of people first retreat, we give a lot of very basic instructions, you know, starting from sitting and posture and everything. So she came in, and she was just in agony, sitting cross-legged on the floor, not just, you know, some pains and then some sitting, it, it hurts, but really in so much agony that nothing was happening but unbearable pain through all her sittings, which isn't really the most helpful way to begin practice. You're just fighting in willpower. And she came in, actually I saw her just at the end of this. She said she had spent four or five days like that because it was clear to her that's what you had to do. You couldn't meditate other than sitting cross-legged. And about the fifth day, she looked up. I was sitting on a chair like I always sit on a chair. She looked up. I was giving instruction or something, and it went in. I mean, five days it took. It went in. Oh. Oh, she's sitting in a chair. And she meditates sitting in a chair. Maybe it's possible to meditate without being cross-legged, you know? It's amazing what our minds can do. And once that was in, of course, it changed. And I encouraged her in that, naturally. So that's to give you a sense of how, even though we think we're really open and not bringing any baggage we can be so sure of something, like that woman, so sure that's how you have to meditate, that we don't even have the space to notice something other, right? We just know this is how it is. And we don't even know we know it. We just, it is how it is, right? You'd argue to the death with someone, this is how it is. So, 
in our practice here, one way that um, people can suffer a lot in relationship to how you're evaluating or judging yourself in meditation practice, sort of like this woman, the example I gave, that I'm not doing it right because I have to sit cross-legged and I'm dying with pain, you know. I can't follow any of the instructions. One of the things that people get caught up in a lot in terms of relationship to insight in their practice is ideas, and you each check for yourself what are the ideas rolling around in there, in your mind, in your heart, that you don't recognize as ideas but that are your beliefs, your descriptions of what either good practice would look like or what kind of state or practice you have to be having in order to have a useful, genuine, liberating insight, right? And often it's, I really want an insight into anatta, into no-self, And the imagination of that is either I have to be so incredibly concentrated in samadhi that I can get to the eighth formless jhana of neither perception or no perception, and then maybe I'll have a blow-away insight into no self, which will never go away again. It will completely and forever change the way that I perceive myself in life, right? No more suffering, no more unpleasant, no more self-consciousness, God knows. Certainly no more greed or, you know, that's, that's what we expect from insight. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little. Maybe, I hope. I hope I'm exaggerating a little. But take it down however many notches and then look at your own practice and see if you're writing off what's happening now as something you've got to get through, get over, move out of to get to a decent enough state that you can begin to really see something useful about life, about practice, about yourself, about liberation, about impermanence, about anatta. So the thing about insight, this spontaneous shift of perception, it can happen any time in the midst of any situation throughout the day, whatever you're doing. I have some of my best insights in the in-between times, you know? Just walking into the toilet booth. I'm still present, but that little bit of extra trying to get somewhere has dropped away, you know? And you're just present without the clinging, and ah, something comes up into awareness that I hadn't noticed before. So really looking, sometimes practice is very subtle, very subtle sensations of breath, subtle sensations of body. There's not much emotion, and you're just really noticing the fine movements of attention. Generally, we like that. Generally, we think it's, it's good, unless it bores you, unless what you think should be going on is really strong emotional release, you know, having something interesting to talk about, or at least to look at or at least to feed a sense of, you know, we're really working on something here. We're really getting to the bottom of something now. Now I'm about to have the, you know, the ultimate experience of my sadness, my grief, my rage. Ultimate meaning, then it's going to be gone, right? And then I'm free from it. So good, let's bring it on, you know, (laughs) and have an insight. And when it doesn't come, and it's just subtle breath, sensations, where you come in and go, but this is so boring. You know, there's nothing useful going on here. But it doesn't matter what's happening. Whatever you're thinking needs to be gotten through in order to get to the level where you can have insight. That's a big mistake. Big mistake. Anything that's happening, just the mind being all over the place. It's the rich field of insight. The insight's not about what's happening. It's about our relationship to it. When you're holding to anything is me, and suddenly that shifts, and you see, oh, this is just conditions arising. That's insight into anatta. Like someone told me the last retreat, they're having 
so much fear. The fear, you know, they'd like be afraid of the people in the hall. They'd walk out into the dining room and just be afraid of that. They'd walk outside and feel afraid of the space. They'd go to their room at night and be afraid. And, you know, having, of course, it's not pleasant, so some resistance to the fear, and also a kind of a focusing while trying to talk to them. There's nothing going on in this room. There's nothing to be afraid of. This is a nice place in the country. There's nothing to be afraid of. The people in the dining room are minding their own business. There's nothing to be afraid of, you know, like that. And suddenly, you say, oh, I don't have to focus on all the objects. It's just fear. Awareness can be aware of fear. And it's just fear arising in the space of awareness. And it was really fine. Still fear, huh? But not that sense of me and other and fix it and what do I do and each new fear is a whole new gestalt to work through. Ah, fear. That's a powerful insight into anatta, into the fact that fear arises due to conditions. You don't always know what they are. Awareness can be aware of fear is like this. It doesn't have to refer back to me. And in that, there's so much space and not so much suffering. You can't hold on to relating in that way, but it really changes the mind stream. You know it's possible. So with fear... Or I remember someone else was saying um, that they were filled. There was some other yogi there who was driving them crazy. I know that's not happening here with anybody, but it was a different retreat. (laughs) But some yogi was just driving this person crazy, you know, and doing what they thought were inappropriate things. Anyway, the person was filled with rage and anger, really trying to work with it, you know, trying not to buy in, but really filled with rage, and would come in the inner and go, I can't believe, and they spoke to me, and they did this, and they did that, and I'm trying to feel the anger, and no, you know, and underlying it, that sense of, well, really, they are being a jerk, you know, it's kind of that self-righteous meanness. But anyway, he said, all of a sudden, after some days, a couple of days of this, not steady state, that's another thing, but some days, somehow there was a moment when he wasn't holding on to either the anger or the sense of himself righteous or the judging himself for being angry, which is also holding on, right? Just a moment of pure attention. I guess I think he must have worked with this person. There was some reason they were in proximity. And he just... Looked, saw this person in the face, you know, not trying to look, but just an open, completely present, non-clinging to any view moment. And in that, seeing the face, he felt such a movement of compassion for that person. You know, you just get an intuitive sense of their suffering and such a movement of compassion. It was so powerful that it just blew this guy out of the water in terms of his whole belief system not only about what was going on in relation to how completely inappropriate that person was, but his own belief system about himself. Because he never would have thought he could feel that level of compassion, which only arises through open-hearted connection. You know, compassion doesn't arise when we're pushing away pain. Others are ourselves. It's a connection. And it just, you know, blew him away to see to feel that possibility, that completely other way of relating in a situation. And it really showed him a whole other possibility in his own assessment of his own internal experience and what was possible for himself. He would have previously not thought that was possible for him. I'm a person who can't feel that level of compassion. You know, The ideas we hold about ourselves based on non-continuous attention based on not really seeing the truth of how things are. So we don't have the conscious power really to decide what we want to see. And some of you have even said that in a different way coming into the interviews where I really, I came here with the idea that I was going to work on this particular issue. And maybe it's a, a huge issue in your life, or maybe it's 
the way practice was, like someone said, you know, I always want to come to retreat and pick up right where I left off at the last retreat, you know. <laughs> we do that good place. We forgot. We forgot the first days, right? <laughs> Which is a good function of bad memory because it gets us back. <laughs> Every retreat I start, it's like, oh, God, right, that first day I forgot. But anyway, people come and think, I'm going to work on my grief or whatever or this situation in life. But it's not coming up. It's not coming up. And we decide, I think I really want to work on seeing impermanence today. You know, I'm going to see impermanence wherever I look. And you can sort of, you can sort of do that, incline your mind. But it may be a day that judging and aversion is what's up. Yeah, you can see impermanence of judging and aversion, you can. But we can't control what we're going to see, right? We don't have that conscious power. And that's actually a clinging that again freezes experience that doesn't allow for the unexpected insight, the shift of perception to arise. So, for example, we can do this all, we get some idea of emptiness, and then we start looking in our practice for that. That looking alone, I can guarantee, is going to preclude noticing emptiness, whatever the heck, because whatever idea we have about it is already too much. And then we're looking for that idea on top of it. Looking for is the best way not to see, you know, anything. Krishnamurti's phrase of freedom from the known, it's so true. That's what mindfulness, bare attention, just a moment of it truly is. A total presence that's free from the known and so open for fresh discovery open just to meet this moment completely new and fresh, completely free from the known. And the deepest um, patterns or misperceptions, I would say, uh, that the Buddha spoke of often, the ones that are hardest to see through because we misperceive so steadily, are what the, the, the three misperceptions the Buddha often talked of as the three characteristics, that we perceive the constant changing, what is impermanent, we perceive it as permanent or lasting, right? We all know we do this intellectually, but this misperception is on a cellular level almost, you know. Or we perceive what is constantly changing, what can never give us any lasting satisfaction or happiness, we perceive that as satisfying as happy, as what's going to make us happy, right? And we perceive what is not self, what is basically out of control. Now, all of these things, what is changing, what is essentially unsatisfying because it's changing, what is out of control, not self, that's everything that we can experience, mind and body. All, any, everything fits those three characteristics, right? All phenomena that come and go. We perceive what is not self as somehow being me, a lasting, permanent me, or belonging to me, and thus in some way subject to control. And because we continually, it's not that we just hold on to that. Those perceptions are arising moment to moment, right? And we don't even notice they're arising because it's so familiar that generally, generally, we just don't even think. It's just that's how things are, right? All the struggle with the sense of self and how can there be a nata, and as soon as we talk about no self, the questions, well, if I'm, you know, if I'm not self, who decided to come here? And if there's no self, who's eating? And how would I go to work? And how would I know which family to go back to if there's no self? And all that kind of stuff, right? That's because, that's in the realm of thought because it's such a foreign concept to us. Because we're continually, unconsciously reinforcing the sense of permanence the sense of me back here driving the show, the sense that there's somewhere, some experience that is reliable 
and comfortable that's going to give me ease and peace, some experience that I can hold on to for satisfaction. That's just so much uh, an unconscious part of us until we begin to meet our moment-to-moment experience freshly that it's really hard to see through. And just deciding, I now I know intellectually that things change, and so I'm ready. I'm ready to see through it. You know, I'm ready now. I get it. I'm ready to put down my misperceptions of permanence. From now on, I'm living in the now. Constant change, right? <laughs> We've probably tried that. You know, it might work for a moment or two, but then it's just so habitual that we perceive the other way. And sometimes on a retreat, again, this is why the continuity of attention awareness is so important because it's in the steadiness moment after moment that change, a constant change, begins to reveal itself. You can't hide from it. The fact that things are out of control, is that a big surprise when you think about it? If you think about any sitting you had, Is it news that the experience of the sitting was out of your control? Have you ever, ever been able to sit down and totally control what happened in a sitting? But have you given up somewhere? (laughs) No? Right, right. When your sitting's going really good, and then suddenly it goes south. I'm not sure why that's an expression for bad. I apologize to Southerners. My parents are Southerners, too. But anyway, when the sitting goes south, do we still tend to think, what did I do wrong? Or do we go, of course, everything's in constant change and flux. So it's changed. Next moment. Once in a while, maybe. But generally, the first thought is, I should be able to control it, and I've done something wrong. Hence, the pleasantness has changed. And so the steadiness of attention begins to allow more and more opportunities for an alternate, more accurate perception. And sometimes that perception, say, of Anicca, I'll use Anicca as examples because it's, it's a good one, because intellectually, conceptually, the fact that things are in constant change isn't really a hard concept to wrap around, is it? It's not like anatta. Basically, we would all agree. But cellularly, the way we live, what would it mean to really, really live knowing that every moment is in constant change? To really live from that, not clinging to something that we know is already changing. I mean, that would be so different, you know. So many experiences, many uh, insights can come into, into impermanence, and they can be, at times, very peaceful, very energizing. Sometimes after an insight, you get really a lot of energy, you know, really inspired. And sometimes, then it can actually be quite frightening, you know. It can go always. So one example, just... This last retreat I was sitting, I was eating and chewing, just chewing very carefully. I wasn't looking for insights into impermanence or anything. I was just really present with eating and enjoying whatever it was. But there, and it chewing it and swallowed it. And it, it was just one of those moments where as soon as I swallowed it, it was so clearly gone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was just gone. <laughs> It wasn't there. It wasn't anywhere. It was gone. <laughs> I know it sounds silly, but... And then I thought, well, not gone. You can feel it in the throat. And I thought, no, that's a thought. That actual food taste, that moment is totally, irrevocably gone. Can't be back. And that's how it is with every moment. It's there, and then that moment is irrevocably gone, you know? The next moment, maybe I could feel something here, but that's not the food that was in my mouth. That's not the taste I was tasting. It's just a thought that says, oh, that's the food now working with the saliva and going down into my throat. And that thought, if we don't see it as a thought arising in the moment, we don't see impermanence. We see there's the food, and now it's changed, and it's going down my throat, and there's this whole nice sense of continuity, and behind it all is me experiencing that. 
So just that moment of goneness, it was great. I loved it. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and without thinking a lot about it, I just naturally started to notice how one moment just falls away, the next moment falls away. I mean, it didn't last all day or anything, but it was a real insight, the kind that is just kind of peaceful and so obviously true that we're resting. It's easy, you know? But often, sometimes people have an experience uh, when there's some concentration where the sense of the form of the body falls away, you know, and it's just sensations arising in space or no sense of the body at all. Or some really difficult emotions there, and it's so me, you know, and then it just vanishes, and it's so confusing to have it gone that even though at first it's far out, there's a kind of such a dissonance in a way with our normal way of being that really quickly the normal views and opinions, the normal way of perceiving kind of comes back in with a vengeance, you know. And so you've had this opening and then fear, fear. Or the fear has the function of the mind just shuts down and everything's solid again right away, you know. Nothing you can do about it, it just happens. Then you spend three weeks trying to get to that place where the body's open, you know, and it's just sensation, so what? But that kind of dissonance, because we don't really realize how subtle and deep these misperceptions are, how deeply entrained in the process of noticing. His Holiness the Dalai Lama pointed out once uh, when I was listening to a teaching of his in talking about impermanence, one of the reasons that even though on an intellectual level we get it, why is it that we still get so shocked when things change? Why is it we still keep holding on? Is that on some level we tend to think of anicca, of impermanence, as, you know, things arise, they last for a while, and then they pass away. So it can be my life arises, lasts for a while, and passes away. The sitting starts, it lasts for a while, it passes away, or this emotion, or my knee pain, or whatever, this day. But really, and then it usually, if it's something we like, it's just that that passing away happens before we were ready for it to. Because I know it's going to pass, but it has this much more time it should go before it passes. Then I can let it go, but not now, you know. (laughs) Or my parents are quite elderly, and when they started to really kind of, my father got Parkinson's, it was such a shock. And I saw how, how really, on one level, I could say, well, of course, you turn 83, stuff happens. But on another level, emotionally, you know, cellularly, my body, mind wasn't quite accepting it. You know, it's like, how can this be? It's like a kind of shock, you know? So his point, His Holiness's point, is that change isn't, there isn't some steady state time between when it arises and when it passes. Change is momentary. Every moment is flux. Every moment of life is arising and passing, arising and passing. And like someone pointed out to me after I said this in a talk, that there's nine billion plus nanoseconds in one second. Okay, that's a lot. Nine billion plus in one second. That's a lot of seconds coming and going. One of the things that happens in retreat as the mind gets quieter, sometimes you start to see One of the first insights is how fast the mind moves. If you're feeling overwhelmed by how many thoughts there are and how fast they're moving and how out of control they are, that's insight into impermanence, into dukkha, and into anatta. Right there. Welcome to insight. Your mind is out of control. It moves at an unbelievable rate of speed, It's changing faster than we can notice it. And that's not a mistake. That's the way life is. Not just now. Not just because your mind's a little quieter. It's always how it is. It's not that once we have an insight into impermanence, things change and get impermanent, you know. They've always been. It's always in constant flux. 
It's always out of control. That feeling we get of being a, a square peg in a round hole, that dissonance, you know, when we have an insight, that dissonance is because of our kind of unconscious holding on to no, no, no. Let it change, but not so fast, you know. Let this sense of out of control, I know there's some way I can get to a place where it's control. Personally, in my own experience, I find this in terms of anicca, staying with anicca. The fact that even as much as we know it intellectually and as much as we experience the complexity, the un ceasing change, how fast things are moving. And I know that cellularly. I've experienced it in many different ways, millions of times, on and off retreat. I know it, you know? It's the kind of thing I know. And still, still, when something unexpected or something I really love goes away or changes, there's a shorter or longer period of time where no this can't go why you know so why do we cling you know it's so poignant because it's the clinging in service of trying to be happy that's actually keeping the suffering going it's keeping us in delusion the confusion of seeing ourselves in the world all wrong And it's as if, no, if I really see how much things change, the sadness will be too unbearable. The pain is too much. But it's just the opposite, isn't it? It's the refusing, the trying to deny it that keeps the pain going. But it's it's so hard. It's so poignant, you know. Looking in myself and talking to people, my sense is that the clinging whether it's to sense experience, to objects, or to having a particular internal experience, or to people in our lives, or to images we hold of ourselves, even suffering ones, particularly suffering ones, we really hold on to, you know, this is who I am, you know, this self-conscious person, this shameful person, this aversive person, I know this is who I am. I could never feel compassion like that. Maybe that guy did, but I never could, right? I just beat myself up all the time. Why do we cling? And, and I see that that sense of really letting go into the total flux. Once we've actually totally let go into it, there's not a me resisting. It's not a problem. It's just opening to the mystery of each moment. It's, it's wonderful. But on the way, that, that shaky ground, that place of unreliability... <coughs> I find for myself it's so scary on some level that I find the clinging is like looking for somewhere to rest, looking for like being, have you ever been in an earthquake? You know, it's it's weird, you know, because you want to hold on to something to to find solidity, but it's the earth that's moving. There's, There's nothing anywhere to hold on to, you know. It's like, well, this isn't supposed to happen. The earth at least is supposed to be reliable, something, somewhere. And it, it was really like a cellular experience of, oh, my God, you know, everything's all topsy-turvy. The mind doesn't like it too much, not too much. And we put so much reliance and identification into our mind, into our thoughts, into our descriptions. So I find this grasping for something a moment of pleasure, a description of the world, a description of myself, a view, an opinion, a sense of knowing what this means. As soon as your practice changes, oh, I was holding on to that, but now it's like this, right? Now I know what good mindfulness is like, and, you know, looking for somewhere to rest. The Buddha said, I love this quotation, the search for a resting place is burning, Not to need one is cool and peaceful. The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. So we can't decide to see impermanence. But we can have the willingness to use the tools 
of the meditation practice and the continuity, the willingness to keep bringing that clear attention back moment after moment just to what's happening. And guess what? You can't not notice impermanence because nothing lasts very long. That really intense pain that's been there all day, if you really look, even if the pain seems to stay when you bring the attention into it, it's not steady state. There's changing in it. That bad mood, that anguish or that fear, if you really moment after moment look, it's there, then it changes. The fear slides into impatience. It slides into terror. It slides into some whole story about the past, and it's not fear at all. It slides into wondering what's for lunch. It slides into boredom. It slides into three hours later, this fear. Oh, yes, this fear's been here all day. That's who I am, a fearful person. Without a continuity of mindfulness, we don't notice how fast these thoughts and emotions come and go. And we just, without the steadiness of attention, don't realize how we uh, kind of subconsciously dance away from the dissonance, the discomfort, the poignance, or the sadness of the changing nature of things, of seeing that there's nothing to hold on to. But touching that poignance, that sadness, is what opens us up to the totality of life, to really living, I think, I feel like it's living in three dimensions rather than in two, to opening into the total mysteriousness that we never know what's going to happen in the next moment, do we? Ever. Really. It's more amazing that we have this schedule and ring the bells and you all show up and it sort of happens. That's actually more amazing, you know? But really we never know what's going to happen in the next moment. And opening to the poignance, opening to the willingness to feel the movement of things, the changing of things, the moving away of things, it actually opens us into love, love of the moment, love of this moment of life, appreciation for all aspects, a real um, creation of the mystery that we never know is going to happen, appreciation and love for each other, not the appreciation of holding on because your presence is going to make me happy, but just the appreciation of here we are and who knows what's going to happen in the next moment. I just want to close with reading some stanzas from, not the whole poem, but from stanzas of a poem by Galway Canal, because to me it really expresses, I get the feeling of impermanence, the sadness, the denial, and how the acceptance of it opens us to the exquisite wonder and beauty of life and love. It's called Little Sleep's Head, Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. You cry, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think that you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. Little Maud, and yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this the nightmare you wake crying from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. Yes, you cling because I, like you, only sooner than you, will go down the path of vanished alphabets, the roadlessness to the other side of the darkness, your arms like the shoes left behind, like the adjectives in the halting speech of very old men, which used to be able to call up the forgotten nouns. Back you go into your crib. The last blackbird lights up his gold wings. Farewell. Your eyes close inside your head in sleep. Already in your dreams, the hours begin to sing. 
little sleeves head sprouting hair in the moonlight. When I come back, we will go out together. We will walk out together among the ten thousand things. Each scratched in time with such knowledge, the wages of dying is love. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. This talk was given by Carol Wilson at Insight Meditation Society on May 25, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.